If you like sports talk with absolutely no sports talk, then welcome to the latest edition of the Just Not Sports podcast. This is the show where I talk to the people who play and cover sports about anything they like that's just not sports. I am your host, Brad Burke. I'm a sports marketer in a very weather erratic Chicago a very uh, cold one day, warm one day, raining one day, snowing one day, allergy craziness all over the place most days. Yes, I'm an allergy kid, an allergy kid. I got allergy shots as a kid. By the way, allergy shots, it's like that old McBain quote, the shots, they do nothing. <laughs> I did allergy shots twice a week for like seven years as a kid, and I have allergies. I'm And I'm allergic to everything. Like I'm allergic to dust. I'm allergic to... Uh, pollen. I'm allergic to flowers, to trees, to all animals. I walk my kid into a pet store to look at hamsters. I'm leaving like coughing and wheezing. And I just want you to know that allergies are definitely serious and not just something that, as my wife says, proves that I'm a wuss <laughs> and I have less and I have less uh, genetic superiority than she does. Of course, as we've discussed at length on the show, my wife Uber jock, <laughs> marathon runner in her in her college's Hall of Fame for athletics, and I was sadly a band kid. So no one else more qualified, as far as I'm concerned, to talk not sports. I just hey, you steer into your lane, man. You steer into the skid. <laughs> anyway, welcome back. Sorry, I took a few weeks off there. Um, had vacation with the fam and promised the wife I would not podcast on vacation. Also, when we travel. With uh, a two-year-old and a five-year-old, you bring all the stuff. You bring all the stuff. So we went to a beach area, and oh my God. First of all, beaches, totally ignored by the young kids. They want to go to the pool. You, 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 you rent a place by the beach. You think you're having a beach vacation, air quotes, beach vacation. You spend the entire time baking in a pool of gross water. Where other kids who you know who just aren't wiping their ass closely enough, who are gonna give you like cryptospidorum or whatever that's called, uh, you know, doing cannonballs right by you. That's the whole vacation. But when you tra- when we travel, man, we bring everything. Like two hundred pounds of luggage. I'm not. I'm not. I am not lying. We had four suitcases, all stuffed to the exact fifty pound limit. Which my wife has a scale. She makes me hold it up. Like we check the, the limit, and if there's still room, we'll put something else in there, and two car seats and a stroller. By the end of that, man, I just, again, band kid here. I didn't play tuba. I played trumpet. I don't know how to carry that stuff around. I'm not conditioned to lug that stuff around. So anyway, as we described, I'm a weakling with luggage. I'm a weakling with allergies. But we took a week off, then came back, then got sent on the road for a week for work. And then uh, I did catch up with our old friend, Gareth. Probably going to join the show here pretty soon in a couple weeks. Uh, we, we hope to uh, pod together here. Uh, and uh, and relive some some former glory. It's like when uh, Sam Malone showed up on Frasier, you know, like that's uh, <laughs> that's what we're looking forward to. Anyway, stay tuned for that. But today, I got an old friend of the show who didn't realize he was an old friend of the show. That's right, Andrew Buckholtz, sports media expert for awful announcing. Andrew's a friend of the show because I have uh, professionally dealt with him before. I've pitched him. I've pitched him stories, uh, you know, in my, in my day job and and for the podcast. I, I read I read awful announcing all the time, as you guys know. I work in sports communications, so you got to stay up on the business trends. And also, I just like their ability to not just be uber wonky with the you know with, with the comings and goings of brands and talent and whatever, but also uh, still speak to the fans' perspective of just what is sports media? Why does it matter? Why do we follow? What do we care about? I sent him out and said, "Yo." Anything is fair game. What do you want to talk about? And he came back strong. Wanting to talk Rush. Yes, Rush. The classic rock hyphen prog rock hyphen synth rock hyphen rock and roll hall of famer rock. 
<laughs> hyphen whatever comes next band from the 70s from the 80s you know them you know their uh fondness for messing with time signatures you know their appearances in ready player one trailers you you know them from flipping around the radio and hearing the same five classic rock songs over and over again and then me like wow this one is in seven four time and it has synthesizers and what is going on and there's it sounds like aliens that is what we're talking about today. And look, it's a great conversation because Rush is an interesting band of that era. We talk, we break it down. That era is a distinct era of rock and roll music. And the artists of the time were, were experimenting with new sounds, with new rhythms. They were trying to take, they were standing on the shoulders of the people who kind of invented modern rock and roll. And they were saying, we've got technology too. We've got gizmos. We've got sci-fi albums. We've got concept albums. We've got everything. And Andrew's a great source for this because he's a longtime fan. He's someone who knows not just their heyday that you all would hear on, on, on the radio, but he knows their earlier era, their later era. Um, so we'd break... We, we, so we go deep, you know, everything from steampunk concept albums to uh, rock and roll Hall of Fame induction speeches where where literally they say blah, 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 blah over and over again in what is arguably a much better speech than anything else that you would hear from the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame ceremony. And then we get into drumming a little bit. You know, Andrew is someone who appreciates the drummer and not just the, the you know, the occasional band where the drummer's the guy you know, <laughs> like Lars Ulrich or Tommy Lee, but the techniques, uh, why drumming is so important, what he's drawn to, modern drummers, uh, uh, women as drummers who've been far overlooked, and who some contemporaries are, you should check out. So it's a really expansive conversation, very rush heavy at the start. Let me kind of get into music overall, and I had a, a lot of fun with this. So uh, buckle up. Get ready for Rush. I would be look right now. I'd be hitting you up with, with, with Tom Sawyer if I knew that iTunes and and SoundCloud weren't going to rip it down for copyright. So here, I'll just kind of do it. I'm probably going to get fined. Probably going to get a lawsuit for the... <laughs> anyway, Andrew Buckle, it's good to get him on the show. Good to break down Rush and stick around after the interview. I will be back to distract you. One of my favorite lines from the show Futurama. Do you ever, do you ever hear that show? Yes. Yeah, <laughs> I, absolutely. I know, and then, then you know where I'm going with this. Where where Fry's got to battle the space invaders, and he's like, "I've got a two liter of Shasta. It's Friday night with no date, and my all rush mixtape. I'm ready." All right. It's Saturday night. I have no date. A two liter bottle of Shasta and my all rush mixtape. Let's rock. And I just, the first thing I wanted to ask was, have you ever made like an all rush out of sequence playlist mixtape? And what would the art and science of that process be for you? Ooh, that, that's, that's a good question. Um, I, I haven't, uh, I haven't made a physical one, but I've certainly okay. messed around with custom, custom rush playlists and, and so on. And, uh, yeah, it, it's interesting because uh, a lot of their stuff, um, I find they're a band where where their stuff works really well as albums a lot of the time. So I like just throwing on an album and listening to the whole thing because they do a lot of it. It, it, it all seems to sort of fit together pretty well. Like they're yeah. pretty deliberate about what they choose for for that. So yeah, any out of um, any uh, out of album uh, mixtapes or playlists I've done, it's it's generally been. Um, I've done some where I just play the really long songs. So like they, they've got a lot of like 15, 20 minute songs or uh, a lot of them are pretty good. So uh, I love throwing a bunch of those on back to back. There's definitely, it's definitely possible to do some playlists with more of their radio friendly stuff. So I've done that from time to time if I'm in a particular mood, but yeah, it, it, it's not particularly easy given, given how much of it is really, is really sort of album centric. Yeah, and that's an interesting point you raise. And and we live in an era where the album itself is becoming less and less relevant as a thing just because of the way we buy music now. 
that said, this is a band that has done a lot of concept albums. That's done a lot of things mm-hmm. that that thematically were were meant to fit together. So it's interesting to hear you talk about trying to appreciate that. And and it, is that a challenge? Given again, in a scattered world where we're listening to more sort of singles or things on shuffle, um, just how do you how do you try to kind of reground yourself in the album experience? Yeah, totally. Uh, I, I think, and it's interesting with Rush in that I think you mentioned the concept albums, and they've done a whole lot of those, and they've continued to do them at times, even when that that concept isn't really much of a thing anymore. There aren't yeah. a, there aren't a lot of bands that have done them recently, and the, the final studio studio album or the most recent one they put out anyway was this big steampunk concept album. <laughs> so I mean. I think they they very much approach things in terms of of making albums, in terms of making a cohesive albums, even the ones that aren't fully concept albums. They're still sort of linked linked themes, linked style, everything. And so, so they're they're interesting to me as a band that obviously they get some radio play. They've done some songs that do better on the radio, but they're really not focused on on singles on on radio play. They're really sort of focused on doing what they want to do and if people like it great yeah i saw this youtube interview with getty lee and he and he, he just kind of says mm-hmm. we're the most popular cult band of all time and i thought that yeah. was fascinating because and, it's, and, it, and it, as you've written they, they have zigged when they were probably meant to zag to in, increase their mm-hmm. commerciality how i guess from a fan's perspective how do you reconcile i mean how much are you aware of the fact that they are bucking the trends and how much does that fuel your fandom knowing that it's yes the music is great but you also just like the experience of them being a totally sort of unique thing in the popular music world yeah i i think that there's definitely an appeal to that for me um there there's there's definitely it's definitely inter- interesting to like to listen to uh, and I mean, obviously, there are plenty of other bands that have tried to, to sort of go against the mainstream and dislike what they were being told by their labels and, and so on. But, uh, but I, I do think that Rush is, uh, in some ways, a really interesting example of that. And I've, in particular, I mean, the one I always love is their story about uh, 2112, which was their first real giant concept album, uh, which they made as a direct reaction to being told to make singles, make radio friendly stuff. And they went and they wrote it like a 21 minute epic instead. <laughs> and it wound up, and it wound up being something that really sort of catapulted, <laughs> catapulted them further up. So, I, I mean, I think there, there's a definite appeal to that. There's a, a, a it, it, it's very interesting to me just to, to listen to and follow and be interested in a band that's, that wants to sort of push the boundaries and, and be different and try something different. And I think that really goes into their, their musical, um, their musical style and their musical innovations as well. Like it's, it's not just about, uh, um, it's not just about rejecting what's popular. It's also about just trying weird things and trying interesting things. And that's when you get into things like their, their crazy time signatures and their crazy drum solos and so on. And even the, the whole, uh, the whole idea of like a lot of, um, from a musical standpoint, a lot of their stuff, the, the, the melody is really driven by Getty Lee on the bass. And then you've got Alex Lyson on guitar doing harmony stuff, which is really different from a lot of what else is out there. And uh, throwing in synthesizers at certain times when you wouldn't expect that in, in harder rock songs and so on. So it, it, it's always been cool to me to see them experimenting, to see them trying different things and uh, to see that like, and it's not even just, um, it's not even uh, just a rejection of, of the popular stuff that, that always produces the same thing. Like I think there's predictability to be like, okay, well, we're not that we're this, you know, you don't really know what they are because it's different every single album. Yeah. And it's interesting because, in kind of revisiting their catalog, it's been a long time since I've thought of the term prog rock, like just progressive rock. Yeah. And then I see that term used mm-hmm. so frequently to describe them. And really what we're talking about there is sort of that mid to mid seventies to, to early eighties era where you started to see them experiment with a lot of mm-hmm. back then what were new sounds. Do you, do you even think of them as progressive rock or do you have a different classification in mind as someone who's, who's much closer to their overall work? 
Yeah, no, I, I do think pr- progressive rock fits fits them pretty well, and it's probably the closest way to describe their sort of genre. Because a lot of yeah. any other band that you sort of put in progressive rock, it's go- it's going to be longer stuff. It's it's going to be um, different stuff. It's it's going to deviate from sort of the standard rock that's out there. And I think that's that's probably the best way to describe them. Uh, I don't know that if you're uh, well, I mean, there's there's certainly some Rush fans who have a lot of crossover with other bands like Yes and Genesis and uh, other real real prog uh, prog st- standouts, but I, I'm not sure that there's going to be a crossover for everyone. And part of that is just because a lot of prog bands sort of have have taken that concept uh, their own way and gone their own directions with it. And so the ways that Rush is uh, twisting uh, twisting what's out there and riffing on what's out there is a lot different than what you'll find in some of those other bands their evolution is interesting to me and it reminds me of like where i am uh with my my favorite band is rem and there's like multiple different eras there's like early jangly guitar rem then there's like the Mm -hmm. the early warner brothers transition where they become the biggest band on earth for a time with u2 and then there's the the post you know (laughs) uh bill barry leaves the band and and they just have to redefine themselves now what's funny is that Virtually every other person I know who knows REM just gave up on them at some point after Monster or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I find myself talking about, or they're not familiar with the early eras, and, and I find myself talking about a band from a holistic viewpoint where they only know the middle. And I'm wondering, from right. your perspective, Rush has had those different eras, and what's it like as somebody's just maybe just thinking about them as defined by Tom Sawyer or something on the radio versus what you know of them, which is like, Hey, you know, five years ago they did this steampunk concept album too. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, um, they definitely, there's definitely a wider fan base that knows, that knows them from the moving pictures album that knows them from Tom Sawyer and from uh, other radio things like free will spirit radio, that sort of thing. And I, I don't, I don't think any of that's wrong really. Like I, I think that that's just as much rush as the weirder experimental stuff on the albums, not as, as many people know, but I, I think it is sort of cool to to look at to look at their whole career and all the very different things they've tried, and some of it has some of it maybe hasn't worked as well, or doesn't work as well for some for some listeners. But I think it's interesting in that they're a band that's very uh, very hard to pin down to one song or two songs or anything, especially if you go beyond the radio stuff. And I, I think there's material to appreciate from every one of their albums. What are some, I mean, look, we know the hits, you know, we know like if if you, if you have classic rock or any sort of rock station in your town, you're going to hear Tom Sawyer. You're going to hear, um, you know, like working man or, or, or that subdivisions. What are some of the essential deep cuts that when people say to you like me, like, Hey, I get it. I get them from a surface level, but where do you point people to, to get a, a, like a, a more robust experience? Yeah. I mean, I so I really love a lot of the of the longer stuff, and I I think uh, maybe the first one I'd point to, and it's interesting because it it somehow gets some radio play, which is fascinating. But um, the title track from two one one two, it would just is, it's the like it's the first um it's one of the first ones where they really just went completely out there and like they told this whole science fiction story um there there's all there's and it's fascinating in that like it's really um it's like five different songs in one song so there's there's a lot of interesting uh, experimentation and uh, narrative and so on going on there and i i think that's sort of a that's a good that, that's one one way to experience how weird this band is. Um, an- another one I, I'd uh, point to, uh, sort of on that front, is from the Caress of Steel album. Uh, they and that was before, even before two one one two, where they went and they did a couple mm-hmm. of big epic things towards the end of it. Uh, they did this three part song called the Necromancer, and uh, then then they went and they did a, a crazy uh, sort of five-part thing the fountain of lamnef to close that one and it, it, those are those are interesting to me in um 
they're not as they're they never made it as big as lawn epics from the lawn epic from two one one two, and uh, they're maybe not as good or not as polished. But you can see sort of where they're going. You can see that they're starting to try and push these boundaries and like tell whole narratives and uh, really taking some some inspiration. I think from like uh, from from classical music and and um, symphonies or operas or whatever, and just telling a larger multi-act story in a track. So I, I think those are interesting ones to check out. Yeah, it's funny you talk about the storytelling. And I think, to be candid, I think some people from this era, the younger people, when they hear something like, um, yeah, I was trying to think, uh, like the body electric or something, and they're just kind of, yeah. it's a story about robots. And I think even the the, the lyrics are kind of like one zeros. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, it, yeah. yeah. It, we There's a fine line between that sort of like, space opera you know stuff of that era and like what we would consider to be like cheesy weird stuff and you see this with sticks and other bands of that era that that said it's important to note in my opinion i wonder how you feel about this these were bands that were heavily influenced by things like the space race like they were probably Mm -hmm. thinking that in 20 years we would be living on mars so I, i you know i do think that there's i have a little bit more license to forgive some of their um, kind of like weirdly dramatic instincts because mm-hmm. I feel like it was part of the zeitgeist of the time, right? Yeah, well, and I, I think it's really interesting that you mentioned the body electric there. Um, I think that's a great song, and it's a it's a bit of a lesser known one. And what, what what's interesting to me is that's off. Um, it's off Grace Under Pressure, which I think is also a spectacularly weird and of its time Rush album, maybe the most of its time Rush album, because it's it's a mid-80s album, and most of it really seems to be uh, about the, the feeling of living in a world that could be on the brink of nuclear war, the feeling of living in a world that that's in the middle of this giant Cold War. And there, there's some, uh, there's a couple of tracks on there. They're very, uh, very explicitly about that. But then I think the body electric is, is fascinating because it's touching on a lot of those themes of of the rest of the album of of alienation and of uh, of differences of not uh, of not being able to understand each other and so on. But it's changing it from from humanity to to this robot. And so it's so it's interesting to me right. as an example. It's interesting to me as an example of like. Yeah, there's some science fiction, there's some weird stuff, but they're also trying to tell human stories. And I think you see that even in things like 2112, where, yeah, it's a trippy sci-fi story or whatever, but at the same time, there's also there's also this running current of like rebellion against society and society trying to suppress information and uh, suppress music. And like it may be a fantastical story, but it's still sort of grounded in my mind. Yeah, and it, look, if it wasn't for all that, we wouldn't have gotten Spinal Tap the movie, right? So it's like all, <laughs> right. all, all is forgiven as well. Um, by, by the way, um, you, meant, you mentioned uh, the, the one Futurama quote earlier, but that's not my favorite Futurama quote about Rush, which would be where uh, Bender, Bender goes off and builds his wooden body and uh, leads the robots in rebellion of, we'll wage a war on technology worthy of being chronicled in the anthem by Rush. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask you, like, what are your favorite... Um, like name checks and other pop culture. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I feel like they're a go-to band for period dramas of that time, especially yeah. like uh-huh. Tom Sawyer stuff. I I actually got really pumped up, and I, I've had you know like Becky Sauerbrunn from the U.S. Women's Soccer Team on to talk about Ready Player mm-hmm. One, and when that 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 trailer sure. dropped, and they used <laughs> Tom Sawyer so effectively in the yeah. trailer, and then I was so pissed they like didn't really do that in the film, and and, and I was like, this is a great example of like, I think. To me, in the in the movie trailer, I was like, "There's just that moment when a Rush song from their heyday mm-hmm. hits, and it takes you into that place um, very effectively." So, have there been any other sure. pop cultural references or, or or uses that that you have appreciated? Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a bunch over the years. There's obviously the famous uh, South Park one of of Tom Sawyer, but uh, I think my absolute favorite is. Uh, 
there's an episode of Chuck that's heavily revolving around around Tom Sawyer and around Tom <laughs> Sawyer being this critical plot point uh, to, to to try and that uh, and it involves it involves like an arcade video game and I think that's very much what you're talking about there of just th- this this era of the 80s and uh, 80s pop culture and video games and uh, cranking Rush and uh, I, I thought that one was just really well done. You know the bands of that era, whether it's Rush and their concept albums, whether it is you know Sticks doing like uh, basically like kind of space opera, um, you know, and, and getting booed off the stage for it, you know, after after following Ozzy Osbourne, they took big swings. And I just wonder, do mm-hmm. do you wish we would see more groups now, especially in a time when rock and roll has definitely ceded its importance as the mainstay of of pop culture? Do you wish more groups would do sort of that deeper, uh, you know, story-driven type of uh, of work, or do you feel like, eh, it it kind of is what it is, but it makes sense for it to kind of stay in that era? Yeah, I mean, I think really, I think there are still some bands that are doing it. I, I think that that there, there are some modern, um, some modern prog bands, some modern metal bands, and so on. There so trying very experimental things, trying a lot of the, the story-driven stuff and so on. Uh, I, I don't... I think maybe the, the the issue is not that it's happening, but I think it, it's not that it's it's by groups are getting the mainstream recognition as much, maybe. And I think there's been a shift toward... It's even more of a shift towards sort of... Uh, Radio, radio playing what define what is a radio single, and uh, and not even just on radio, but on screen platforms and playlists and so on. It, it's a lot of picking. Okay, this is this is uh, uh, what's going to be a single, and so on. And so I think the uh, the other stuff is still there and it's still accessible, especially in the area where it's so easy to stream music and pick what you want. But it, it can be a little uh, it can be a little harder to find at times. I, I do think though that. But um, yeah, I, I, I did always and always have appreciated Rush's willingness to try new things, um, to really go in different directions and to go in directions that even some of their fans didn't like at first. A lot of fans really didn't like when they started uh, using heavy synthesizer stuff during the 80s. Uh, a lot of fans have been skeptical of some of their uh, some of their newer stuff and skeptical of the Clockwork Angels steampunk concept album. And, that. and uh, I, I think it's really cool that they've continued continued to sort of do that and continue to sort of try and push the envelope. I think the other thing is that they don't necessarily take themselves super seriously. I think that they're willing to laugh at themselves. And uh, the one really good example of that comes from the other uh, great pop culture theme of them, which is an episode of the Trailer Park Boys, a uh, weird Canadian series. It's on Netflix in the U.S. now. But there's an episode where they go to a Rush concert and they wound up kidnapping Alex Life's And it's just... <laughs> Like it, it's it's a very funny piece a piece of pop culture, especially with the the one guy in this group like loves Rush and idolizes them, and the other two guys don't care at all and are treating him like crap and don't care that he's this big famous rock star. They're going to kidnap him, and so I think that like that to me that sort of um, encapsulates some of them that they don't take themselves that seriously and they're willing to just do goofy things like that. Where do you stand on Alex Lifeson's uh, Hall of Fame speech where he just said blah, blah, blah for like 10 straight minutes? Blah, blah, blah. Blah, 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 <laughs> I think that falls into the weird and experimental category. <laughs> I guess his other bandmates didn't know he was going to do it. He told his wife, and then he gets up there, and it's like this crazy bit of performance art. And yeah. then they're just kind of standing there, like, uh, "Okay, brother, like you. I guess this is you, you doing your thing." Like, got a huge response. It's yeah. kind of become a, a culty YouTube phenomenon. Yeah, I, I think some of the context there too is that, that, like, there was a long time where because 
Uh, like what you said earlier about, about Rush being the world's most popular cult band, right? Like by album sales, they've sold, sold so many albums. And um, a lot of people thought they should have been in the Hall of Fame a long time ago. And so when they eventually de- it did get in, they, uh, there was a lot of reaction in the fan community. So, well, this is nice, but like it's sort of embarrassing that it took them them this long to recognize that i guess and so i, I think that may have uh, figured into license uh, move there a bit yeah how seriously do you take the rock and roll hall of fame <laughs> not not particularly i mean <laughs> Uh, I mean, I think the issue with it compared to, say, Sports Hall of Fame or whatever, like Sports Hall of Fame, absolutely, there's debate on who's in and and who's out and, and whatever. But, like, there's a better group of statistics that you can go to to make a case for somebody being in or, or being out or whatever. Uh, in, in music, really, musical taste is so subjective and so individual that I, I don't think you can really have a whole lot of debate unless you go to the sales figures. And even then, then it's just it's just a hall of popular people. So, yeah. Well, let's transition into drumming now. And and mm-hmm. you know, Neil, we'll start with the Rush drummer here. You mentioned the the crazy time signatures the band was known yes. for, and I think there's something that always kind of keeps you on your toes, which is another reason why I think a song like Tom Sawyer um, is is such a mainstay of radio now, is because there's something that's kind of uh, very different than any other song that would come before or after it in the playlist mm-hmm. that just makes you kind of stand up and take note. What about his specific style of play? Do you think helped differentiate the band? into uh, again to make them sound different than a lot of the other i mean a a lot of the other groups of that era i mean you know i don't think too many of them are easily confused with rush you know i mean they are really distinctive yeah Uh, yeah so uh, yeah neil purge just is an incredible drummer and uh even even people who don't like rush but are are into drumming are generally like yeah he's pretty he's pretty awesome so uh i think the the time signature is, is part of it and it's definitely it's a willingness it's a willingness to experiment and to do really different things like you mentioned you mentioned Tom Sawyer and that's actually part of how i got really into rush in the first place uh i was uh taking, taking drum lessons for a while and uh, after quite a while because it's not an easy uh, song to play but one of the songs my teacher had me play was Tom Sawyer and it is just it's a crazy piece of drumming uh, from the 5-4 time that which then shifts into 7-4 time it's got these crazy Tom fills in the middle of it it's all very very different but that works so well when it's put all together and I think that's sort of a lot of what's appealing about Neil Peart is that, like, he'll do these weird, he'll he'll do these weird things. He'll try these different things and try like uh, different uses of cowbells or or of uh, di- or different uses of, of whatever crazy part of his like twenty piece drum set he's focused on at the moment. But at the end of the day, it feels like it's being done for a reason. It feels like it's something that's for like the actual effect, not I'm just going to try something crazy. I think part of that, too, um, also relates to him being Rush's primary uh, lyricist. He writes the lyrics for just about everything they've done. And so I think he's very thoughtful in his drumming about what's working with the song, what's working with the, the, the lyrics he wrote, what's working with the overall impression he's trying to give here. And it, it also it also helps that all three members of Rush are just incredible musicians and they all really they've been together for so long and they all riff on each other in such interesting ways and i think that helps make each of their performances even better yeah i mean what are you looking for in a drummer and i know that's kind of a crazy question because it depends on the band for sure but Mm -hmm. you know i mean it it's usually it's usually the forgotten piece of a of a group from a um a pop relevance perspective, you know, the leads, I mean, with a few exceptions like Motley Crue or something like that, it's rarely the drummer that is the most famous member of a band. But from, you know, that said, they are often the heartbeat and they can definitely change the sound and, um, and dimensionalize a group. I always laugh at like, not to rip on Lars Ulrich, but 
like mm-hmm. he basically did the same fill for you know once they slowed right. down like he just basically did the same thing on every song and i always wondered like hey you know if you had just woven in somebody else like does does he does that band have a second act that is you know that is or a third act or whatever you want to classify it as as different so from your perspective like are there essentials that you're always looking for or certain types of drummers you're particularly drawn to yeah, I mean, I think it really it really depends on the band, and I, I think that there, a lot of the drummers I admire are because they're such good fits with their band. Like, I, I don't think Neil Peart's experimentation and uh, other things work as well in like Motley Crue, for example. <laughs> right. I, mean, the, 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 I don't think they'd get a lot at all. But 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 I'm like, and he, also he he can't he can't play drums upside down. You know, Tommy Lee is yeah. like the ultimate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah so so i mean i feel i feel it's gotta it's gotta work with the band and so uh, for um uh, on like like the technical experimental level i really like neil pert um i really like uh, mike portnoy the former green theater drummer yeah. and there's a lot of crossover between rush and green theater like if you if yeah, i was talking earlier about how if you like one prog band you don't necessarily like all prog bands but if you <laughs> like experimental rush you probably like experimental green theater i feel like and so they're they're those two are just incredible on the on the like sort of controlled technical scale experimentation side and then i like some drummers who are much who are much more just sort of um out there and i guess frenetic is maybe the best way to to describe it i think the 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 pure example of that is keith moon of the who who is just crazy and incredible and just like such a driving force behind their stuff but also really sort of um just like a but a, a bottle of restless energy in their work and i think we've, we've seen that with some other people uh over time too um uh, nickel mcbrain from iron maiden gives me a lot of that same feel of, of it, it's a lot it, especially like watching watching them live you see like how into it he is and how he's really driving a lot of the frantic stage antics and so on and uh, i think the other interesting one there it's obviously very different stylistically but i've always been impressed with uh travis barker from blink 182 and i think he's one of the it, he, he's got that same sort of just frantic frenetic energy and i, I think when when he joined uh, right before anima of the state i think that really took them to a new level and his is interesting in that it, it's always frantic it's always out there but at the same time um it, 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 it's it's very it's thoughtful too. It's like he thought about it, what he's going to do beforehand, and then he just goes out and does a bunch of crazy stuff. But it, but it's stuff that works with what they're going for. Yeah, it's interesting because I I think again as rock has has receded from the the forefront of all things pop culture, um, it doesn't mean there aren't still interesting people doing it. Actually, you sent me a list mm-hmm. of other folks. And I, I'm glad you mentioned um, the drummer from Sleater, Kenny, because as you say, you know, there mm-hmm. are a lot of women who have been doing this for a long time and not getting the recognition they deserve. And in some cases, like I always thought Meg White got shit on like i mean yeah, yeah. sure jack yeah. white jack white's a musical genius but like you don't have it's not a zero-sum game you don't have to denigrate her and say she's sure. not worthy but i mean i do think there has always been this kind of strange resistance so are there any other examples that come to mind or specifics about uh about about janet from sleater kinney that um that, that, that draw you in yeah i i think again janet weiss she's she's a really good fit for that band, I, I think she's um, she she can be very very hard driving at times, uh, which I think works with what they're going for. But it's also um, it, I think with with her, it's it's hard driving, but it's still controlled. And I, I think what makes a lot of um, what makes a lot of Slater Kinney songs really work is that like they're very they're very thoughtfully put together the whole thing works uh works as an entire piece and i think her drumming is is quite a bit of that and i i think meg white's an interesting example you brought up too because a lot of people are like oh well she doesn't have the technical skill or whatever she was the perfect fit for the white stripes and for what they were trying to do there and and like it's not um I, I think it, you can you can have all the you can ha- do all the fancy things in the world and all the experimental things in the world, and if it doesn't fit with your band, then it, it, it's not a good move. So I, I think she was perfect for what they were doing. Yeah, you mentioned fit. I always go back to like the worst fit in a band ever was uh-huh. when Dave Navarro joined the Chili Peppers, 
And that entire (laughs) album is just sort of like someone took a third of a Jane's Addiction song and just like cut it into what the Chili Peppers did. And I just, from your perspective, are are there other examples of that? And uh, I guess specifically around the drums, and he he wasn't a drummer, but like specifically around Mm -hmm. the drums, like what... Who do you think is just not a good fit, or if they if if a group could change out their drummer, who would actually help? You said, like you said with Travis Barker, like take them to that next level. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's an interesting question. I'm I'm not sure if I really have any that are that are a super bad fit because I, I think bands have sort of they've often sort of figured it out, right? Like I think they've figured out what they're looking for from their drummer in most cases, and so that like that's how. You, that's how you wind up with, with with Meg White in the White Stripes instead of like Neil Peart or, or somebody. That, I mean, that's that's why you've got uh, it's why like Travis Barker is a fit for Blink One Eighty Two and isn't necessarily a, a fit for like the Foo Fighters or whatever, right? So I, I think it, it's um it, it's much, to me it's it's much more about uh, bands bands finding who works for them and the drummer then like figuring out well what works with this band what do uh what do i do to make this band better and so i, I think there are many more cases of positive than negative fit and what's your what's your take on the foo fighters like not to drift but i this has been a hot topic in my office for years with some people really love them and some people just really don't quite understand i mean they get why they're so popular but they kind of they feel like they're on the spectrum of of greatness closer to the nickelback end than the uh uh, than the iconic end. So where do you where do you fall on on all things Foo Fighters? And and, and do note, Dave Grohl is an avid listener of my show. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I mean, I I think I certainly appreciate the Foo Fighters. I, I think I certainly um uh, uh, appreciate uh, a number a number of their songs. I appreciate the, the uh, I think they've been able they they bring a lot of energy to the table, and I think that's an appealing thing. Um, not everything they do works for me, but I think that's more about style than anything. And I do think one thing that's interesting with them is you mentioned Dave Grohl, and I think it's interesting that he went from being the Nirvana drummer to being the front man for the Foo Fighters. And I, I, I think that sort of, he, he brings, um, I think he he brings sort of that drumming background and that brings that approach to song construction. I think that's an interesting thing. So to close out here, I mean, because I, I I read that great article that you had a couple of years ago about seeing Rush in concert. Mm-hmm. What are some other memorable concert going experiences for you that um that you would say kind of were were your your ultimate highlights? Yeah, I mean, I, I've seen Rush a number of times, and I think that would always be uh, up up near the top for me. They're they're just they're incredible live, and the, uh, what's impressive to me too is that um, they do they do concerts in a way that, that's very it's very much um, it's not just playing the hits like a, a bunch of the times when I saw them they'd play an entire new album or they did a different tour where they played an entire album from thirty years ago or so on and then throw in a bunch of other stuff. And they, they put in just a tremendous effort and give really long concerts too, which I think is also cool. Um, and uh, so another highlight for me would be uh, seeing Iron Maiden live. And I've seen them a number of times as well. And it's sort of a similar thing. You know, they, they they go out there, they give it just a great a great effort. Uh, they do they really bring in a lot of stage shenanigans, which is, which is cool with uh, uh, d- different props and different uh, background changes and that sort of thing that really helped make it a, a full thematic uh, experience. So I, I think that's that's been really cool. And then uh, my my current favorite um, band uh, to to watch live is a Canadian band called the Arkells. Uh, Tim Oxford, their drummer, is really creative and really uh, really brings in a lot of a lot of different techniques as well. He, he he's one of those uh, just supreme technical drummers, and they they put out just an incredible amount of effort every night. And regardless of whether they're playing for like a hundred people in a U.S. bar or for a whole stadium in Canada, so uh, I. I think that they've always put on some great shows as well. Well, this was great, man. I appreciate you coming on, uh, giving us so much time, breaking down so much rush. And uh, I, I'm going to look, do you think they're, are they done? Are, are they going to put on any new music? Uh, I know that I think they've retired from like their big, you know, stadium touring mm-hmm. era, but I, you yeah. know, you can never quite tell how real that is any given day. I mean, Mick Jagger <laughs> was trying to roll it back yeah. this year, but um, do you expect more music from them anytime soon? 
Yeah, I, I don't. Um, and uh, the big reason behind their retirement was that Neil Peart does have uh, arthritis, and so it's been it's been getting much harder for him to to, to to play and to tour lately. And so, and it was interesting to me that even with that, like it was sort of a it sort of fit Rush in a lot of ways. In that, um, like a lot of bands would go out and be like a final tour ever, make a huge splash or whatever. They just sort of did their tour and then announced after the fact. Oh yeah, we're probably done. So, so um, uh, yeah. So I, I'm not really expecting anything more from them. I think who knows? Maybe they'll maybe they'll put out another studio thing or something. But uh, if if this is it, uh, they they've had just a, a tremendous run and uh, put out a, trend, a tremendous amount of good quality music. And we are back in the sports world. Athletes, coaches, media, they all, you know, get into things. They enjoy things. They like things. They pursue their passions. And then we tell them, stop being interesting. Please get back to breaking down game film. We just want you to be an automaton, a a cybernetic future robot that, that would appear in a Rush song. And that's ridiculous. Life is just work and the things that distract us from work. So on this show, we celebrate locker room distractions by telling you what's been distracting me all week. I want to talk about Game of Thrones. I want to talk about one specific thing from Game of Thrones that's driving me crazy. First things first, no one has to like pop culture. You don't have to like certain things or certain things that speak to some people or that are universally, air quotes, universally renowned or respected. You don't have to like. I know people who hate certain movies that I like. I know myself it was lukewarm on movies that I understand to be culturally significant. Uh, same with TV, same with books, same with theater. It is what it is, man. You do you. But there's something happening on this season of Game of Thrones that I find super problematic. And here it is. Arya, spoiler, 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 kills the Night King. Okay? And now this notion of, oh, but all of the narrative for her getting there is air quotes unearned. And I'm like, I'm like that's bullshit. Because for seven years, we've seen this character go from... A wit. We've seen this character go from literally beating the king, King Joffrey, with with a, a sword, right, to watching her father be brutalized, to vowing revenge, to training up, to everything from the dagger falling out of her hand uh, that was later used in the scene. Like her whole narrative has been: I've seen violence. I'm more violent than people want to admit. I'm going to lean into it. I'm going to go and do it. And so you do that for seven years and you think, sure, she knocks off a Night King. She knocks off somebody at the end. But I find that to be earned. But here's the other thing. There's a weird way that we're looking at this, which is, are you judging earned by what you're seeing presented to you through the art? Or are you judging or are you judging it by the surround sound around the art? And I think that's a really big distinction because specifically there's that scene where that witch Melisandre I'm probably I'm probably messing up I'm I'm going to mess up her name red hair red witch <laughs> uh, Stannis's witch you know who I'm talking about she sees Arya early on she says you're going to kill a lot of people green eyes blue eyes brown eyes and everyone then says oh man that was foreshadowing later when she kills uh you know she kills not just other people with 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 brown eyes but she kills uh the night kings you know she kills the blue eyed a menace of Westeros. And then you see this counter narrative, which is like, yeah, yeah, but that's not true because three years ago, there's an interview with the creators where they said, blah, blah, blah. And like, they clearly didn't know that was going to be the intention. But I say, hold up. If I started Game of Thrones today, totally fresh, totally out, never seen it, never heard about it, whatever. And I watched it all the way through. That would be foreshadowing to that moment. Her saying, you're going to kill people with blue eyes, would potentially connect down the road to this moment with the Night King, especially because they, they revisit it right before it happens, blah, blah, blah. But if you want to look at everything else happening around it or do this like clue board game style mystery show in your living room where you're like, but I looked up this interview and this clearly shows they didn't know that was going to be the ending or they, they thought the, the Martin books would be done by now and, and they were, you know, they're just retconning this. My point is, who cares? 
Like you have to judge the show by the show they present to you, not by how they discuss it. So if you're going to talk about something being earned, then judge it on the art through which they tried to earn it. Don't overanalyze, overcritique, uh, overinterpret uh, the artist's intentions. At the end of the day, um, at the end of the day, that doesn't matter. It's how you experience the show, and this is something that I think is. Is, is an inherent problem with television because it unfolds in seasons and you have these long breaks. It's not like a movie where you go and you watch Endgame. But what I'm noticing is I think this same pattern is also happening for everything. It's like people are all mad and angry because Snoke is dead in Last Jedi where we didn't know his backstory. And it's like you weren't necessarily ever promised his backstory you might have watched 15 youtube videos theorizing he's the first jedi but that's not the director's problem he chooses to do whatever he wants he's looking at darth vader in return of the jedi having one convo with luke and then being like fine i'll save you like that's if that happened now we'd all be screaming it was unearned or too rushed or the directors were trying to move on to indiana jones i mean we just have to look at the art on the screen and evaluate it and appreciate it for what it is and not get so lost in the, again, in the surround sound around it and start to judge the art by all this other noise that exists because we live in a nonstop media world. And if you choose to do that, okay, but then do it dispassionately. Like, you don't, don't get online and freak out and be like, oh, no, this is so bullshit because they didn't mean that. They're recycling this line that didn't mean that whatever. I, okay. I mean, if that's what they did, just be and and you want to do the legwork to figure that out, then be like, okay, interesting. That's that's how they retcon that, and judge it more like I would as a critic back in the old days with the paper, just kind of like finding it fascinating how art is made and appreciating the choices the directors make. Sometimes under duress, sometimes ill conceived, sometimes very wise. Um, just kind of appreciating it was it for what it is. <laughs> Good transition. My Gmail, just not sports at gmail.com. I'm on Twitter at just not sports on Instagrams at just not sports and shout out Andrew Buckles joining the show. Check him out on awful announcing, check him out on Twitter, read his reporting. He does a great job staying on the pulse of what's going on in sports media. Very valuable. If you're like me and you work in the industry, but if you're a fan, I think it's really relevant too. They do a great job over there and uh, more to come. Again, I teased, uh, going to have Gareth on in a few weeks. Um, kind of give you an update on, on all things Gareth and, uh, some other guests coming as well. So, Appreciate you tuning in every week. And in the immortal words of Shaquille O'Neal, booty rappers, stay booty. Right